Well, let me start out by telling you, uh, telling you two stories about my experience with the police. <laughs> Herb's like, oh, what did I sign up for? <laughs> First one is actually Herb has a, a giant law enforcement breakfast that he holds every year. And he invited me to it once. And I got to sit at the head table with the main speaker. And I was wearing a suit. And I knew a, a bunch of the guys there from being at New Life. And like once, once, I, got, once I got over like the initial shark and my heart rate went down a little bit. And I was like, okay, okay, I'm on this team. I'm on the team. I'm good. As soon as I got over the initial shock of it, and I kind of realized I was just literally surrounded by a thousand cops in uniform. Uh, but I, once I, you know, I kind of recognized I was at the main table, and everybody, I was like interacting with everybody. I knew a bunch of people, and I was literally in the community. And it was like all of a sudden I was like, man, this is like, this has got to be the safest place in San Diego right now. Seriously, ain't nobody going to be acting the fool in the middle of all this right now. I am perfectly safe and, and comfortable and secure. And it was really a kind of a, you know, it was really kind of a cool feeling to be in the middle of that kind of security uh, and peace that was brought about by being in that community, right? It was great. Second story. <laughs> Uh, Y'all know what's coming, right? Second story. I'm also surrounded by cops. <laughs> this time it's on the, on the intersection of Midway and Sports Arena Boulevard, and they are dismantling my lowrider uh, Honda Civic trying to find the contraband. And I can't remember if it's in the car or not. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there, I'm sweating, I'm angry, uh, I don't like the cops at all. Uh, as, a as a matter of fact, when I was in that life, for those of you who may be visiting today or, or new, this is prior to me becoming a Christian, old life that I used to live. Me and my uh, business associates, we literally called the police the dark side because they were the ones who were hunting us. They were the ones who were trying to stop the party and to us in our twisted reality uh, as we pursued more and more twisted things and our, our minds were, were made backwards so that we actually believed that what was good and right and just was actually evil and I hated it and there was nothing I wanted to do more than get away from those cops as fast as I possibly could. Now <laughs> What's the purpose of that story? The purpose is that you can, you can have a very different response to someone based on kind of who you are and what you're all about, right? When I was, you know, essentially part of that law enforcement community, uh, it was wonderful. But when I was against it, and when I, my mind had been degraded to the point where I thought what was good was actually evil. It was awful. It was dreadful. It was, it was, I was repulsed by it, and I wanted to get away from it as fast as I possibly could. Now, what does that have to do with, this, with today's reading? Today's reading is very difficult because we're talking about being in the presence of God. 
And although most of it is, is absolutely wonderful, there's also a scary aspect to that, right? Herb was talking about in the law reading how we cannot be, sinful man cannot be in the presence of God. It is too terrifying. It is, it is too dreadful. Uh, and for most people, or for, for us, for some, for some, let me say that, for people who are in Christ, the experience of being in God's presence forevermore is, an over, is overwhelmingly joyful. It's a, it's a reality that is so wonderful and beautiful that God has to present it to us in metaphor and story and picture because our time-bound three-dimensional minds cannot, we do not have the capacity to comprehend how beautiful and wonderful it truly is. And yet, for others, that very same presence is going to be a dreadful sorrow. And this passage talks about both. Most of it is beauty and joy and overwhelming joy and peace and happiness. But there also is a somewhat of an element of it here that gives us another, kind of hits it from another angle, what the, what the reality of, you know, what we talked about last week, the lake of fire and those who are outside of Christ in eternity, what's that like? It gives us another view. And so let's start with that first and get that out of the way so we can move on to the, to the overwhelming joy, okay? Let's first talk about the reality that for some, living in the presence of God will be dreadful sorrow. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And in the book, he pictures hell as this giant, they call it gray towns, this sprawling metropolis. Uh, it's a, and it's pictured, it's, it's, it's pictured as millions of miles, uh, millions of square miles, because the people hate each other so much and they argue that they keep moving farther and farther away from each other until they're, all, they're, all, they're so far away from each other, what would be a normal-sized city is now spread out across millions of miles. And they all have these bizarre... Uh, uh, explanations of Greytown, one, one, even though it is, it's, a, it's a slowly descending sunset on the town, it's getting darker and darker, one of the residents exclaims and, and, is, and is proud of the fact that Greytown is in experiencing the everlasting sunrise. He sees things backwards. And here's the thing, it's, they are not closed off from heaven. Every, in the story, every day, buses go back and forth from Greytown to heaven, and anyone is welcome to get on one of those buses and go. However, most people never do because they prefer Greytown. And those who do venture to get on the bus almost invariably end up coming back because it's too real, it's too bright, it's too beautiful. Uh, it contradicts everything about themselves and it is actually repulsive to them and they prefer the sorrow and the dread of Greytown and they return. It's terribly sad. It's a great story. When I first read it, I was like, uh, okay, great story, Clive, but there's some big theological issues in here. God is the judge of all. Get the great white throne, you know, judgment. It's God who is, and Jesus bringing a sentence across people and that's true. There is that element of it. However, C.S. Lewis, in writing that story, the more I studied this passage this week, I think he, 
he was on to something. And listen, listen to what he was on to. Listen to these key verses. We see in this, in this chapter, in 21 and 22, we see this, uh, the concept of those who have been thrown into the lake of fire from chapter 20 uh, are depicted as being outside the city, okay? In, in 21.8, we see the lake of fire metaphor, but in 21.27, the metaphor changes up and it talks about nothing, no, the, nothing unclean will ever enter into the city. And in 22, it just says straight up that all of those outside of Jesus, all, those, all of the wicked are outside the city walls. And yet, if you look at verse 21.25, it says... The gates are wide open. In fact, they never, ever close. They're wide open all day, and there is no night. So why is it that the, the, the evil dead or the wicked don't stream into the city? The gates are wide open. What exactly keeps them out? And the answer is the wall. But not maybe how you would think. The wall... Uh, if, you, if you pay attention to the proportions of the city, the city is, tw- is 1,300 miles high, right? And yet the wall is about 200 feet. It's like crazy out of proportion. If you were an ancient Near Eastern person and you're reading those stats, you'd be like, what? 12,000 stadia? That's 1,300 and some odd miles tall. And the gate's only 220 feet tall? That's like the first clue. But this, the second clue, the more important clue, is that it says the wall is made entirely out of jasper, which is probably diamond, because it's talking about clear as crystal. And it has all of that, 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 that shimmering brilliance, that rainbow shimmer brilliance that really fine diamonds have. The entire wall is made out of this stone. And here's the thing. In Revelation chapter 4, we see that jasper is, what is, is what's used to characterize the glory of God or the physical, the presence, the very presence of God. In 4.3 it says, He who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper or diamond, this shimmering rainbow appearance. And so what is it that keeps what is it that keeps them out of this city with wide open gates? It's, it's the glory of God. It's the glory of God that keeps people out. It's too much. It's too bright. It's too beautiful. It's, it's to their minds, repulsive. Zechariah, too, says essentially the same thing. Zechariah said... I will be to her, meaning the eternal city, I will be to her a wall, a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. The whole city is depicted as gold that's transparent like glass to give us this understanding that we are the city and yet we are reflecting uh, and, and transmitting the glory of God out into the world and that glory of God is so bright it's so beautiful it's so real that those who have spent an entire lifetime hating God and becoming more and more twisted by that are repulsed by it and they want nothing more than to stay away 
Think about Gollum in, in Lord of the Rings. As the ring captures him more and more, he's driven down in darker and darker, deeper and deeper into the earth, and he can't even eat good food. He has to eat fish guts, and everything good and true and beautiful has become repulsive and ugly and wicked to him, uh, like it did to us when, you know, my opening story, until he cannot stand the light. He can't stand anything that's good, true, and beautiful. You know, like I said last week, we don't know, we don't know what hell is. We can kind of, we can only, we have some educated guesses, right? We know the fire is symbolic for judgment. We got pictures here of outer darkness and cold and being outside. We have this picture here of the glory of God being repulsive and repelling the wicked dead. But what if, I mean, what if hell is, what if hell is, is, is really, is this just you getting your own kingdom, getting what you want? What if hell is like this forever? What if hell is you, yourself, getting to do whatever you want forever, left alone with your favorite sin? and all of its destructive power. And C.S. Lewis said somewhere else that, you know, these besetting sins uh, and character defects that we struggle with over the course of 70 years is not that big a deal. But what if they continued to get worse and worse over the course of an eternity? What if, what if you, you know, what if you had all of your dreams come true and you were the most powerful person in this kingdom with all the wealth, everything you could possibly imagine, and yet it was sinful and that was multiplying over and over and over again. And you would become, at the end of that, uh, it would just destroy you. Now, I'm not saying that's what hell is, but what if that's part of it? I mean, what if, kind of puts our own sin into perspective. Would you really want your favorite sin for a, a thousand years? to be eating away at you. Last, last week I said, I said we, we, you know, we don't really know a lot about what hell is, but we do know that you don't want to go there. And this week I was thinking, maybe instead of saying you don't want to go there, it would be better to say you don't want to become the kind of creature that would prefer it over heaven. And that process has already begun one way or the other. Okay. Now, one way for us to understand the beauty of being in God's presence is to see the negative of it. What would, what it, what would the terror of it be? What would be outside of Christ so that we can then look at it in a positive light? So the second part, second part is living in the presence of God will be an overwhelming joy. There's, there's been a lot of books. Maybe this has gone on forever. I don't know. But certainly over the last decade, there have been a ton of books about people who went to heaven and came back and told the story. Visions of heavens. People who had near-death experiences or kids who had visions or dreams. And uh, some of them have been like, some of the people have come out and admitted, I just, you know, I made this up to make money or whatever. But I think, I think we can confidently say that all of those 
uh, all of those books are probably wrong. And the way we know they're wrong is because we can understand them. <laughs> they're understandable. It's either I was, uh, you know, fishing on this beautiful lake or I was sitting with Jesus and he was, you know, we were having dinner or, or whatever it is. It was, it's all these earthly pictures. Um, but they're understandable, whereas really the problem, one of the hardest things about preaching and talking about this section of, of the Bible is how do, you, how do you create pictures? I mean, when you're, when you're preaching a sermon, nobody remembers the theology of the sermon, but they remember the story that you attach to that theology, right? And so how do you, how do you come up with stories or how do you come up with illustrations to illustrate things that are already in illustration form? How do you do that? Uh, and how do we explain the joy of being in the presence of God when we have lived our entire life under the curse and we have zero experiential reference. We have a zero, nothing, nothing in our experience on earth gives us any, any kind of reasonable reference really to the magnitude of the experience. All we've ever, listen, all we've ever experienced in life is, is, um, is that everything breaks. Everything eventually falls apart. Everything, uh, Everything requires maintenance. <laughs> and that's by design. That's the curse. So how do we even talk about, how do we even talk about realities that are already in picture form and, and, and how do we talk about them when we have no real experiential reference point? At the end of the day, I decided let's, we're just going to have to stick with the symbols and the pictures that God has given us and really hope that Holy Spirit will bring out what those, the meaning of those things are. And so, this part starts by, listen, look at who is, uh, look at who's, who's showing John the city. It's the seventh angel who had the seventh bowl of wrath. Remember who that guy was and what he did? He's the guy who destroyed Babylon, the harlot. Remember when we were in that sermon, we talked about how Babylon the harlot was a counterfeit version of the bride of Christ. There was all these similarities. She was a, a, an imposter. And so now the seventh angel who had the seventh bowl of wrath who destroyed Babylon is now showing John the bride using all the same language as a way to highlight that there's a contrast happening here. There's a contrast happening between the pale uh, and, 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 and powerless substitute, the counterfeit that Satan had created on earth is now being contrasted with the real, the true beauty of, of, of the bride of Christ that Jesus has created uh, through his work for us. And here are the big, so here are the big, categories or here are the big images that are that are put out the first one is that this is going to be like a marriage 
I mean, we first, well, as a foundational level, God is, you know, we pray our father. There's that father and child imagery where, um, that we have of, of God that gives us one, you know, aspect or an understanding of the intimacy of our connection. But here, it even goes a step for, uh, further than that and says that our experience in the, within the presence of God is going to be like the most intimate closest relationship that we have here on earth. That's the picture that he gives us. There's nobody closer to you than your husband or wife. And this isn't talking about like, you know, honeymoon or first year marriage closeness. This is like, I think this is talking about like 50 year marriage. 50 year marriage where you are like the love of, of, that, of, a, of a good solid marriage where you have become, you know each other so deeply and you developed a real love for each other that's so strong that it's unlike anything else. Tim Keller talks about that, you know, that goal in marriage, in, our, in the mar- Meaning for Marriage book that we use for premarital counseling. But it's given to us not as God sitting over there in the throne and like we're over here in the stands and we like get to, you know, we like cheer for him. <laughs> I mean, that's what I think of. When, do you think about that? I, th- I think about that when we're in heaven. I think of like God on the throne. I'm like at a concert. I'm like at the sports arena and like the band is like, you, you know, they look like little ants on the stage and there's Jesus and there's the angels and the 24 elders and then I'm in the loge seats at the back and, you know, that's not, that's not it. It's saying that our experience with him is going to be a magnified uh, a magnified version of the intimacy of a deep and abiding marriage. And the second, okay, second, the second category or symbol that's given in this is the idea of covenant, which is, a, which is a promise. Covenant is essentially a promise, especially in this salvific or the covenant of grace that we have with Jesus. It's God's promise to us uh, that he is going to save us and bring us into this relationship no matter what. And nowhere is that more clear than in Genesis 15 when God makes this, prominent, this promise to Abraham Abraham gets put to sleep to like highlight and make it, and there's no question that Abraham has got nothing to do with this covenant except to receive what he's being given. And then God walks through these slaughtered animal parts to basically saying, I'm going to take the curse of these slaughtered animals upon myself. I am going to accept the punishment my own law deserves in order to bring you through and to save you. And that covenant promise now we see being fulfilled uh, that God comes through on that promise. The third big symbol is temple, which just simply means God's dwelling place. Where does God dwell with man? In the old covenant, it was the temple or the tabernacle. In the new covenant, it was Jesus. And now we're being depicted as the city. Even Peter says that we are like living stones that are being fashioned together as the dwelling place of God. We, the church, each of us individually, our intimacy is so close that God is going to be indwelling us. And that is going to be our experience of him. Uh, 
The fourth picture is Israel, which is his people. God has made us a dwelling place and made us his people. He's promised to be our God and he's promised that we will be his people. And Jerusalem, or the new Jerusalem, signifies place. And in the old world, that was super important. I mean, right in, the, in our world, you can be kind of a vagabond or a nomad. You can move around. But in the old world, if you didn't have a place and a people and a land, you were like subject to like all kinds of pirates and thieves and robbers. So to have a place that was secure uh, was a huge deal. And so here's, like, here's the thing, though, man. When I was thinking through and seeing all of these symbols that, that God is bringing out in this chapter, here's the amazing part. All of those symbols go all the way back to the very beginning, the same four or five symbols God has promised us to be present in intimate relationship with his people in a secure place. That's what he's always shot for. That's the whole course of history. When Israel had a temple, it was a symbol of what the truth would be, that he would be dwelling with us and that we would be the dwelling place of God. When he constituted Israel, it was a symbol in itself that we were going to be the people of God. When he made the covenant, it was the promise that he was going to make all that happen. And when God was... You know, the images of God and Israel as being betrothed. All of that was pointing forward to this great reality. When we would be so deeply in the presence of God, so intimately connected and with God, uh, that we would have complete security, complete identity in Him, uh, complete provision everything that we would ever need uh, in an overwhelming joy. It's a picture of the reuniting or the uniting of heaven and all of the glory that you can imagine with that coming together with the earth uh, in this never-ending experience of God that will be so joyful and wonderful that God has to use all these metaphors of gold and jewels and massive cities and dazzling bioluminescent sparkle of diamond is really the best he can do to explain to us what it's going to be like. We just don't know. I mean, you can just, that's all we can really say. So we don't know what we're going to be like, but we know we're going to be like Jesus. Paul says, we see dimly now, but then we will see face to face and we will know him even as we have been fully known. And I don't know, I don't know what that means. I just know it means something beyond the reaches of my mind. One thing that fires me up though is this, there's in the beginning of Luke, first chapter of Luke, there's a story about Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, uh, and the angel Gabriel comes to visit him to tell him about John the Baptist, and, and Zechariah basically says, who, you know, who are you, and how do I even know this is true, right? And Gabriel, he says, he says, I am Gabriel. This is how he introduces himself. He goes, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. Now think about that. Think about what he just said. 
he's saying that this reality, all that reality that we just talked about was true of him as an angel, right? And what gets me fired up and I hope gets you fired up is that, you know, someday each one of us is going to say, you know, I am blank, insert your name. I am Herb and I stand in the presence of God. I am Robert. I stand in the presence of God. I am Matt. I stand in the presence of God. Insert your name. That will be our reality. The presence of God, being in his presence is hard to grasp. Maybe the idea of eternal life is even harder. And that's the, the last part. We will be in the overwhelming joy of God's presence for all eternity. It's hard to understand because we live in a world of diminishing returns, right? Uh, Everything requires constant maintenance. Everything falls apart. Everything breaks. The very best of things lose their flavor over time. Even the funnest experience become less fun. Just about everything requires more work and more effort for less reward over time. And so being raised in that, it's hard to understand the idea of eternal life, because you may, you could be tempted to be thinking, it's kind of like this forever. Uh, it sounds like a really, really, really long and hard chore. Um, and if that's you, maybe rather not. <laughs> maybe rather not. It'd be a better option to just be snuffed out of existence at the end of this life. And sadly, deeply, sadly, a lot of people are hoping and trusting in that reality. But it's not like that. We are moving into a world of ever-increasing returns. And just like, just like, like now, nothing can ever go really right without God. When we are with God, nothing will ever really be able to go wrong. Nothing will ever be able to go wrong. And the first promise at the end of this, uh, of this reading is the first promise is that we have been given access to the river of the water of life. Now, we already have the very beginnings of this when you, when, you come into, when you come to Christ. Jesus said in John 7, if anyone, this is pulling out of that, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. He's not, it's not so much that we, this passage isn't really saying that we will become fountains of living water, although that's true. It's saying we will be connected with Jesus, who is the fountain of living water, that is the spirit. Jesus is like the conduit through which the Holy Spirit, in our union with him, flows out to all of God's people. And yet, this picture of this, live, this, this river of living water flowing through the middle of the street, uh, it's a picture of the, really kind of the trickle, the, the spiritual life that we have in us right now is countered by our sin, right? Your spirit life is, the, is, that, is that voice that comes out and says, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I wouldn't do that if I was you. It's with us but it's muted. And this picture is, is, is it that spiritual life moving 
from a trickle to a roaring torrent of life. Just being in God's presence necessarily means that his life is roaring through us. And so no more will the voice be like, I wouldn't do that. It's not even going to come to mind to do that because we will be so satisfied and so content and so complete in what we have in God's presence would never even come to mind never come to mind to do anything that would cause uh, us to be pulled away from him. And the second promise is that the tree of life reappears. Now, some people, some people think that the big goal in life is to get back to the garden. I've heard people say that. We just got, we need to get back to the garden. But listen to the difference here, right? In the garden, what was there? There was one tree in the garden, there was one tree in a small garden, and it was held out to Adam as reward for covenant faithfulness. He wasn't like eating on that tree while he was in the garden. It was the reward for Adam being faithful, and you all know what happened. You all know the end of that story, how that ended badly. And yet now, Jesus, the second Adam, who fulfilled and completed and did everything the first Adam failed at, uh, has granted us and given us access. And now the tree of life is not just one tree. It's, it's, a, it's rows of trees on each side of this river. And the garden's not a small local garden. The garden is now expanded to cover the entire cosmos. It's the perfectly recreated world uh, covering everything. Everything is beautiful. Everything is joyful. Everything is perfect. Everything is peaceful. Everything is good. That is hard for us to understand. But in this one last image, really, that we get in the Bible... This is kind of, this is really the last symbolic image we get, the reinstitution, the reintroduction of the tree of life uh, that has this escalating wonder to it. It's not just a tree with a fruit, it's groves of trees with 12 different fruits. There's a variety and continuity and leaves that bring complete healing. It's all pictures of being completely healed from what we suffer with now and having this ever escalating further on, further in experience of life and joy with God. And the tree itself stands as the witness to God's power and God's plan. He put the tree in the initial garden as like a show, a sign of what he would bring about. And then the reality of it is so much greater because that's how God does it, right? makes all these promises in the old covenant. You have a land, you'll have a place. And then when he comes through on that promise, it's astonishing. It's a reworked cosmos. It's groves of these trees of life and, and even more astonishingly wonderful than our minds can imagine. It's, this stands as a witness that God absolutely will come through 
on all the promises that these symbols represent. And our great hope, and what he calls us to keep in the forefront of our minds, is the shortness of this life and the breadth of eternity and the quality of eternity that stands in front of us. So when we get tempted to do things that would twist our minds to that, we can remember who we are and what God has prepared for us and what our future is. And that is worship. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, your promises are... um, And these pictures, if we really sit and meditate and dwell upon them and think of the implications of them, they are too wonderful. Too wonderful for our minds to imagine, Lord. And so we praise you for securing this for us, Lord. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he has purified us and he has given us his life that he has taken away the disease of our sin and the death of our sin, taken it upon himself and went outside the camp where we should be and given us his life and given us a place as people in the royal city of God. Lord, there's going to come a day, Lord, when you're... the, The power of your life flowing through us Ah, God. Will be the reality of who we are forevermore. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember that. We pray that you would help us to not be fooled by the little tricks of Satan to not buy into the lies of our culture about this is going to make whatever we're tempted by that we're going to be fulfilled by or made us happy. But we pray that you would help us to remember who we are and what you have planned and what you have in store for us so that we can stand, Lord. So that we can stand as witnesses to the faith, witnesses to the beauty of these promises, come what may. Come what may, Lord, help us to stand. In Jesus' name, amen.